This is Johnny Blue Star. Welcome to Threshold, a global media event. Is the universe just a random dance of atoms, or is it a manifestation of a supremely intelligent architect? Can its purpose, or our purpose here on Earth, be adequately assessed? Can we commune with it, know its intentions, cooperate with its direction? Here, we define Threshold as a gateway state of awareness, allowing mankind to cross into a place of real cognition. Threshold allows us to approach questions of higher reality through the door of experience rather than mere belief. Welcome to Threshold, where we tear away the veil from commercial media, bringing our audience and participants into another realm of reality and enhanced communication. Michael Priv, it's really good to see you again, or at least to hear you anyway. Yeah, likewise. Uh, absolutely. Same here, Johnny. Thank you very much for having me. Well, today, uh, Michael, we're going to be discussing your, your next book. The Golden Fleece was really interesting to read. This one was extremely interesting to read, too, for a completely different reason. This book is called You Are a Psychic, The Healer's Handbook. Right now, I think it's fair to say you're a practicing psychic who's written a book on psychic healing. Years ago, quite a few years ago, I think by now, you were in charge of translation for Scientology until you left under what I would say were rather extreme circumstances. Before we get into the book, perhaps you could briefly review your career and exit, which you describe in the book we just mentioned, The Diary of a Scientology Warrior, The Golden Fleece. And then, then tell us how you began to develop new methodologies as a psychic and healer, somewhat different than in Scientology. In other words, give us your post-Scientology career path. Oh, sure. Well, so Scientology takes you so far. There is so far that you can go in Scientology, which is quite far, um, but not far enough for me, obviously, but, it, but farther than probably most people realize. Uh, Scientology has a bad rap. And it's completely deservedly, uh, as an organization, Scientology organization sucks. You know, let's face it, there are many reasons to say that and so forth, which are not important right now. But basically, yeah, there is, uh, there is a problem with Scientology. But as far as Scientology methodology and Scientology as a, as a tool for spiritual enhancement, it's actually quite powerful. It's booby trap to a degree, you know, but it can take you further than any psychoanalysis that I ever heard, but not as far as you could go on a good meditation regimen. Although Scientology can reach deeper to remove the barriers and remove the things preventing people from getting results with meditations. Right. But with that, with that out of the way, you can get farther with meditations and so forth, much further than with Scientology. And also gains uh, from Scientology tend to be temporary because, like I said, it's booby-trapped to not address the absolute rock bottom, you know, cause of things. You know, I, I don't want to get into that like very deeply right now. Well, did you know that when you were, were practicing Scientology that there was a, a, another other levels? No, no, of course I didn't. You know, I was a Sea Org member. I was a member of the Sea Organization, which is uh, an extremely... Uh, grueling, uh, kind of like serious paramilitary organization. And I was up on the very top at the int base at the headquarters of International Scientology International. So over there, we didn't have access to newspapers, internet, you know, books, uh, YouTube, 
libraries or whatever. So there was nothing that I, I, I couldn't, there was no way for me to, to think anything kind of thing beyond Scientology. Sure. Uh, but the reason I left was not because I didn't consider it reaching far enough or deep enough, but uh, because I was in complete disagreement with corruption and uh, all kinds of crap that was going on in there uh, right at the top. You know, like I could, if I was lower down, I could have thought, uh, that, well, somebody is, uh, you know, just going too far locally and maybe the management, the top management, international management doesn't know or may maybe there is some kind of like coup attempt or some kind of corruption locally at the bottom somewhere. But no, I was at the very top and corruption, uh, uh, corruption in there is at the very top, uh, at the very top of the very top, not, not, not you know, it's just it's like as high as you could get. Yeah, as high as you can get in Scientology, you know, the, the emperor himself type thing. Well, um, okay, so you had to leave under extenuating circumstances. Just briefly describe that and then tell, tell us what happened next. Well, so finally, so that kind of was boiling and boiling and boiling and finally it blew up and I left my post, which is, like I said, it is a military style organization and uh, discipline is very harsh. And leaving your post is treason. So I was tried for treason. I was, uh, there is a special court um, that, you know, you get if you do crimes, of, you know, different crimes and so forth. It's called the Committee of Evidence. The Committee of Evidence uh, found me guilty of treason. And I was uh, sentenced to uh, Scientology, uh, to Sea Org prison in Los Angeles. So I was shipped in there. It's not it's called prison. It's called Rehabilitation Project Force or the RPF. But basically it's prison. You're basically in prison. Right. So I managed to, I spent a year in there, even like a little longer, like 13 months in that prison. And finally, I managed to escape dramatically and so forth. And with not a penny in my pocket and no belongings of any kind, nothing even at all. You know, I managed to make my way from Los Angeles to San Francisco, where my parents lived. And um, I crashed on their sofa for a couple of weeks. And then I started a new life at the age of 45. Right. Must have been uh, very challenging. Yeah, yeah, it was challenging. But you see, life in the Sea Org is also challenging. So in a way, it was much easier. <laughs> you know, no, I, I do know, I do know a little bit about it. Yes, having read your book, but also having read other books and talked to other people about Scientology, and um, it's quite remarkable that you got out and you started fresh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what were the next steps? How did you start to become interested in this level of, uh, of, of psychic uh, healing and research and so forth? Well, so Scientology claims that it can give you these abilities that are not called psychic in there, but with pretty esoteric, unusual spiritual type of abilities and so forth. And I was working on them uh, when I was there, and um, they were not really attainable. Like... I would kind of like almost get somewhere. I could almost remote view. I could almost transfer my thoughts and pick up thoughts from somebody else. I could almost like, but not quite and stuff like that. And I was, you know, really trying to figure out why. And I figured out why. I figured out that, the, you know, what, what the problem was. I figured out what the problem was. I mean, it, it was like a, a bit of a lengthy uh, process. And I studied different other religions. I studied the total of 28 you know, I studied these other religions and so on, just trying to somehow grasp what was formulating slowly in my mind. You see, the 
the very reason, the very the, the way Scientology is booby trapped not to let you achieve those abilities is what I was getting at through uh, other religions, yeah. uh, through through other things. Like some something was holding me down, and I finally figured it out. And um, by trial and error. You know, honestly, I didn't have to study most of the religions that I studied. Of course, you know, there are some some uh, tremendously important ones, such as, for example, uh, Buddhism, of course. Mm-hmm. But also there is uh, unexpectedly, there, there was a religion which I consider very important, which is called uh, Tangri, Tangriism. Tangriism, and uh, which is still uh, in existence even in Mongolia and other parts of, of that part of the world. It's tremendously important. And then there is also uh, for understanding of our spiritual origins and where we are going and where we come from. And uh, another one that I found very remarkable was Manichaeism. That was, uh, that's dead now. It existed for about a thousand years, since about the second century AD to about the 12th century AD. It started in, in uh, Persia and uh, it was the religion of light. Uh, uh, that's you know, Manichaeanism, Monarchy, right? Manichaeanism, yes. It's kind of hard to pronounce. I don't know how to pronounce it very well, but it is uh, pretty interesting. It's very interesting. It's very interesting um, that they're, uh, they consider the, themselves light beings, beings of light. And there is a you know, background why they consider it. But anyway, so light was important. And uh, in my healing methodology that I use, uh, light is also very important. So, like, basically, this, all these different things, they kind of um, pointed me in the right direction. You know, Tangriism is very important because it points the way up. Did you, know, you have, the, a, did you have a, any significant teachers personally in this process? Well, I would consider me, like, personally, one-on-one, no. I kind of, like, shy away from teachers after, uh, you know, after Scientology, which is very authoritarian. This is just, like, the final word in authoritarianisms, you know. But, uh, you know, I consider, of course, Wayne Dyer, my teacher, Marie Christie uh, Sheldon, Mm -hmm. and Michael Beckwith with uh, Agape Foundation, you know. Michael Beckwith. Michael Beckwith actually is the only guy who, uh, you know, I am, I am not talking about just reading or listening to, to these uh, three people, but also doing things that, they're, that they, they want you to do, like actually like doing the drills and meditations and so forth. And uh, so Michael Beckwith, uh, one time practicing what he was, uh, the drill that he was, you know, the exercise that he wanted me to practice in, in the CD that I was listening. It was actually the first time that I actually clearly touched something which I call God, uh-huh. you know, which was extremely important uh, to me because being a researcher, I kind of immediately researched that phenomena that we call God. And I came much closer at that instant to, 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 to developing healing abilities and figuring out how it all works, you know. So, yeah, so those were my teachers. Wayne Dyer, of course, is, ju- is an absolute genius. I just love Wayne Dyer, Wayne Dyer. You know, it's too bad he dropped his body now. He definitely did a lot of good for me. Well, you, you know that I manage a group called the Wayne Dyer Experience, the Wayne Dyer oh, Experience on in LinkedIn. I didn't uh, know that, no. Yeah, he, he was a great guy. Well, what happened good. to me was that I read a lot of his books, and I, I was um, always annoyed by them because they, seemed, they didn't seem to really get it get at what I wanted. And then I read his autobiography, and I realized that he went through a period of changing. 
you know, from more, more or less a kind of straight motivational teaching to a, a very spiritual teaching. And I realized I was missing something in my life, and that had to do with, I had a lot of failures, uh, a lot of big, bold things that I did, and I failed in very strange ways. And uh, I realized that the, the connection between source and manifestation, I realized that I didn't really have that connection correct. And when I did it, things started to change for me. And I felt very grateful uh, um, because of the things that happened. So Wayne Dyer has been very important to me, and I did practice a lot of the things that he taught me. He taught me to rethink things. I, I started to rethink the way I look at people, the way I look at failure, the way I look at everything. And uh, and I actually changed internally. So I understand what you, you went through. So yeah. in this book, you claim that we're all psychic, first of all. What do you mean by psychic? And what are you basing that, that idea on? Well, so... Yeah, there are several ways of looking at this. One way, the simplest way of looking at it, without getting into all the meat and potatoes, which I have a feeling that I will have to anyway, <laughs> but uh, just the simplest way of looking at it, if I achieved, I don't consider myself to be anything special, like honestly. I mean, I, I, I was born in a communal apartment. You know, communal apartment is uh, in Russia, in the Soviet Union. Commun a communal apartment is an apartment shared by several families with one bathroom and one kitchen. It's like the, the bottom rung of any kind of, you know, any kind of something that you call home kind of thing. It's like a, it's one step away from homelessness. Yeah, basically. It's basically, yeah, it's basically you have roommates and these roommates are different families that are, that live in your apartment. Usually a family has a room and they, uh, several families share a bathroom and a, and a kitchen and uh, rooms are usually small and bathrooms and kitchens also and there is a lot of friction. Basically, kind of, it looks, it, it's not like a very good place. It's in a high rise. So, a high rise apartment building like this, stuffed with about a thousand families, is like not good for you. Wow. You know, to that's grow up interesting. In. So, so that's, that's how I grew up. I was never like anything special, particularly that I could uh, find, you know. And then I left the um, uh, Soviet Union at the age of 19. And I, uh, after four months uh, journey, which was uh, pretty interesting and dangerous and so forth, but basically I ended up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I graduated the University of Pittsburgh as a construction engineer with great difficulty, uh, partially because I didn't speak any English when I came and partially because um, I had to work full time to support myself while I was also studying full time uh, without speaking any English at first and wow. so forth. So it, it went kind of rough. But, and it took me five and a half years. But uh, finally, basically, I graduated as an engineer. I never worked as an engineer. I uh, found a job as a um, project manager for a construction company in Hayward, uh, which is here in the Bay Area where I am now. And that's how I came from Pittsburgh to California. And uh, in here, I found Scientology. And I started working for the church at, at, at first as a practitioner, kind of like a psychotherapist, which is called an auditor. In Scientology, I got trained and got educated in, in Dianetics and started applying it to other people and so forth. And then I joined the C organization and I was in the C organization for about 18 years. So, and then I escaped and then I started from scratch. I was selling uh, hot dogs in um, uh, downtown San Francisco in the financial district for a while. And then I found a job as a construction estimator and it started, you know, picking up from there. I got married and so forth. 
So you didn't so, you didn't have a golden spoon in your mouth at all. No, and I didn't have any esoteric uh, type of things. Not like I spent a year in Tibet uh, contemplating things or anything like that. You know, it was just like a madrash all, all the time. And uh, I didn't have any uh, education uh, particularly. You, you know, I have a bachelor's degree. I graduated University of Pittsburgh. Okay, you know, uh, me and about five zillion other people. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. not like I, I have a PhD in... Uh, uh, theology or anything like that. Well, listen, Michael, we need to take a break now, and we'll right. be right back and, and continue this uh, discussion, and uh, we'll, we'll see how a person who has that type of a background could suddenly blossom into, into what you have become right now. I'll be right back. Thank you. This is Johnny Blue Star, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. Initially, I wanted to be a playwright, but once in college, I fell in love with movies and have been writing my own and for clients for many years. No, I'm not entrenched in Hollywood. But I think if you look at my samples, you can determine if I can capture the drama and power of your idea. I'm up to refining your work to professional quality. I've worked on dramatic films, comedy, science fiction, documentaries, and even musicals. I have several books published now that are the beginning of book and film franchises. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com and fill out the contact form. The following is from West Side Warrior, the memoir of Ray Boylan, a Korean War veteran and crime fighter. He was there fighting in the world's coldest battlefield when the Chinese communists invaded. Desperate squad members ran past our foxhole yelling, Get the hell out of here! There's too many of them! Again, we saw the Chinese soldiers charge again with opium-induced mindlessness, oblivious of our bullets. Again, we heard the bugles and whistles. Climbing out of our foxhole, Bob dropped two hand grenades behind us, and I threw one over my shoulder. Bullets whizzing by our heads, Bob and I became bolts of lightning flashing across the mountainside. Like a hideous film, desperate scenes like this played out on the Tokong Pass for three days. Sometimes I played in the scene. Sometimes I could only watch and wonder if it were real, or if I'd be suddenly jolted out of my trance by an RKO usher saying, Hey, did you kids sneak in here? To acquire this book, Google westsidewarrior.boylan.kindle. Boylan is spelled B-O-Y-L-A-N. That's westsidewarrior.boylan.kindle. Here's a bit of a song called Love Never Withers, which I wrote with composer Edgar Ahrens and is performed by the remarkable Patricia Welch.
Well, we're back with Michael Priv speaking about his his book uh, called You Are a Psychic. And uh, it's about, it's actually a book about psychic healing. And Michael, you were telling us a sort of about your rather challenging way that you grew up and how you entered into uh, the Scientology and, you know, before you had actually studied to be an engineer. And um, all the things that happened to you were pretty regular things until I guess you entered Scientology. And that's where you uh, blossomed a bit and, and moved up in the hierarchy. But um, basically, uh, you left there with a lot of unanswered questions. I realized that you had sort of an ordinary background, so you feel that everybody, no matter what their background is, uh, if they're interested, could actually move along the, that sort of spiritual path. Well, yes. Uh, there, is, there was one unusual, um, I, I thought it was usual at the time, but actually I see now that it was an unusual quality that I always had. You know, I was curious. I was very curious. I was very interested in um, how this whole thing ticks and what makes it tick and who makes it tick and uh, how it's all held together and so forth and so on and immortality and reincarnation. All these things were always interesting to me. But unlike many other people or most other people, first of all, I was willing to do something about it and experience things and uh, actually, you know, forge my own way and my own understanding as opposed to just kind of sit and read about it or talk about it and never do anything. So that was one thing, which I thought everybody had that, but actually no. I see it now that it's not true, that like vast majority of people do not want to do anything, just they just want to discuss it. That's first thing. And second, I never had any preconceived idea. I had no agenda and nothing to prove uh, from the beginning. I was not uh, doing a thesis. I was not... Uh, you know, trying to defend uh, any viewpoint or do a PhD or anything like that on any of this. I was just going where it led me, and that's very important, and that's also lacking from what I see. People already have some kind of idea, and they're simply looking for for something that would support that idea, and they reject something that doesn't support that idea. Well, in that way, logically speaking, uh, you're going to arrive to the same place where other people already arrived, and if that's where you want to go, great. You know, let's say, for example, um, if somebody wants to think that they're a monkey and uh, an, an animal and uh, <laughs> so forth, and they, they only live once, okay, good. What's important in life is money and material things and uh, a lot of sex and stuff like that and a lot of uh, pleasures of different kind and, and so forth. Okay, good. Then... What needs to happen then is to take a look where it actually leads. So that's most people. So let's see where, where it led them. And where it led them also takes some observation, some unflinching, confronting look at what's happening with people when they get older, at what's happening, how they live their lives and so forth. And one thing that comes up immediately is a huge amount of disappointment. Uh, people are disappointed. They think that they do everything right and it should work. And they heard or they understand that they're supposed to go on a lot of vacations. And they go on all these vacations and they're surrounded by tons and tons of, you know, cassettes and video cassettes of old kinds and video cassettes of new kinds and photo albums of old kinds, uh, old kinds and uh, some drives, you know, the flash, flash drives with uh, digital photos of more recent kind and so forth. <laughs> and, and then they're saying, but wh where do other people go on vacations that they actually have fun, you know? 
Yeah, because inwardly they're dissatisfied. They don't have that. There's a hunger they didn't even know they have, and they probably still don't. You know, I tell you, in in my case, I'll just make this really brief. I um, was always on a spiritual path since, I mean, very consciously since I was 14. And I eventually evolved into this. I, I was eventually interested in sort of the Western intellectual tradition, although I had studied all kinds of other things. And uh, I went to a school because I thought I could find, you know, that philosophy was part of the answer. I went to a school that was basically completely devoted to the classics. I spent three and a half years trying to figure out where the hell anything in all these books and everything else, what I was looking for. And so I gave up everything. I gave up everything. I was, you know, playing, being a writer and all this other stuff. And I made a search. And I did, in a very circuitous way, find my first teacher and I had my first real experiences when I was in my early 20s. But I gave up everything, everything. And so I know if you're hungry like that, the universe helps you. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. Exactly. Well, you know, so you made the leap. Well, most people are like, are proud of not, never making any leaps. They're proud. People are proudly say, I- I'm so down to earth, you know. They're saying, I'm poking in the dirt. I'm like shoveling crap all my life, you know, and I'm so proud of it. Isn't it great? Isn't it what we are all supposed to be doing, you know, to be happy? I know. I mean, my, most of my relatives were like that. Most of the people I knew, yeah. uh, and even the people, eventually, eventually, a bunch of my friends joined me. But um, even so, it's always been a kind of lonely, you know, in other words, you have to find what you're looking for, not what other people are looking for. And exactly. so you have to take you have to take those risks. Yeah. Um, uh, let me ask another question here. Okay, so we've we've established that there is something different about a person who is who is uh, who's going to find some of these things because they have to have or somewhere develop a hunger for it. Is that correct? Yes, they have to develop a ha- hunger and they have to overcome a few barriers. Like one barrier is this addiction to authoritative teaching and thinking and instruction. Like, in other words, it's not a matter of Googling it. You know, you can Google it and, uh, okay, so I want to be enlightened. You know, uh, Wayne Dyer, you know, said it, just nailed it on the head. He said that enlightenment is um, being immersed in and surrounded by peace. And somebody, let's say, heard this and said, wow, immersed in and surrounded by peace. You know, I want that. Okay, good. So how do I get there? And they Google it, and they just do what, what anybody says and so forth, and they are not going to find it. They may find the, uh, little bits and pieces. They may live better than they did before, you know, but I don't think they're going to find it by just Googling it. There's more involved. There are barriers that prevent them from going from doing that. And uh, those barriers, one of them is um, this authoritative instruction. Okay, so, you know, there is something that, Cannot, most important things, in my opinion, cannot be taught by authoritative instruction. It can only be taught by subjective reality experience, which is meditations. So, okay, so now we get into the realm of meditations. Now, meditations are ancient. You know, Wayne Dyer didn't invent meditations and so forth. And, and, no. and basically, you have to actually do them. Meditations like drills and any skills. In here, we are talking about spiritual abilities, which is basically skills. 
you know that they have they require drilling they require exercise and practice and practice makes it better and so forth uh, but so meditations have to be done meditations is not something that you talk about meditations have to be done but then okay so then you look up meditations and how to do them and you get so much information and about 99% of, of it is false you know well, see, you see in my in my case i did find two teachers in over a period of 5 years and it was very strange how I found them. But basically, their idea was that you take, do certain exercises and you, uh, there's sort of a progression of developing, I guess we, what you say is, uh, is, uh, uh mindfulness in, in a certain way. Uh, and, uh, but I also had an instinct for what I wanted to, uh, to find. And I didn't find it in both these teachers, but it was progressive. You know, it was helpful. And I did, I did everything they said, but they never, told me to do anything outside of these exercises you know what i mean it was never there was never any kind of cultic well there wasn't any kind of cultic side to what i was taught anyway yeah well so i guess what they didn't mention because maybe it wasn't relevant to them personally right but there, there are these barriers like one one of them is ability to do or like proclivity or basically habit of doing things rather than uh talking about them and uh, experiencing things and being able to discern uh, right from wrong, uh, good from uh, from bad, and figuring out where which way is up, you know, because it's necessarily known or clearly understood and so forth broadly. But then there is another um, factor, which is which is what I call ethics. Um, so ethics is a powerful thing, you know. Ethics. So basically, enlightenment kind of means to us being ethical also. Like you, you wouldn't call somebody enlightenment, enlightened who is a hooligan, you know, loudmouth, <laughs> roughneck. Um, I, I think that righteousness. It says, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God," which I take it to mean the presence of this consciousness and its righteousness, and all else will be granted unto you. And that's one of the things I got from Dyer, and actually from a lot of other sources that this experience this ultimate experience has a quality of pure righteousness yeah. and, and and conscience having a conscience caring about other people is a uh, it's sort of the a mirror of that in other yeah. words you don't have to be to experience righteousness you don't necessarily have to even believe in god but you have to have a certain concern over other people and doing the right thing and uh, but that is uh, i think closer to god than just someone who's just living out their lives without that sensibility. Yeah, exactly. But I wouldn't necessarily swap the uh, concept of personal ethics with the concept of righteousness. I guess the difference is realization or understanding or somehow basically getting to the point of understanding which way is up. Because let's say, for example, I may be uh, feeling very righteous being, let's say, anti-gay. Yeah, that's not righteousness. That's uh, that's more like self righteousness. You know what I mean? It's not. That's not what I mean. Uh, I, I understand what you're saying. Real righteousness, I think, is is a mirror of this experience, and it it it, it is. Uh, you know, it's unconditional. It's based on sort of something like you speak of in your book and in, in great eloquence, unconditional love. Yeah. So there is unconditional love. So okay. So now we are kind of aligning ethics toward unconditional love, which would be basically the ultimate uh, emotional uh, state. Actually, from my research, I actually determined that it's the only emotional state that even exists. 
it's it's our native state and it's our and it's uh, this is basically it i mean unconditional love is is what we are and what we you know where we came from and so forth and everything else any other emotion would be falling away from that unconditional love all the way down to the emotional state which we recognize it as fear so with the introduction of fear at the very top we don't recognize it as fear but we with more and more fear present we finally begin recognizing it as fear and so forth so okay so so unconditional love gets corrupted by you know increasing amounts of fear and that would be the way down well l listen michael we're gonna have to take another break now and uh, we'll be right back uh this is just uh very interesting Dr. Yugo Rodier has published four books on health issues covering practically all chronic health problems. You may find them by accessing his website at yugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com. Gut health is the most academic, while switching off chronic disease is the most patient-oriented with simple recipes to implement his nutritional protocols. This is Johnny Bluestar, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. Our company, within the last year, has produced and hosted a variety of multimedia blogs for various authors, singer-songwriters and musicians, talk radio programs, media content ads on holistic medical and political environmental topics, etc. These blogs were then posted for our various clients and associates on multiple social networks. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com and fill out the contact form. We're back with Michael Priv. We're talking about his book and his life, but his book is called You Are a Psychic, The Healer's Handbook. And it's, uh, it, it says basically, this book presents a series of meditations and drills that can help any person develop their psychic abilities. As one more thing before we begin, I wanted to say, there's a disclaimer here. I want to co-opt this uh, disclaimer for both of us in this program and also for your book. And you're talking about how the handbook is a tool of spiritual enhancement. It is intended for the development of spiritual skills and abilities. It is not intended as a substitute for medical help and does not advocate the abolishment of medical services. Any medical condition should be checked by a qualified medical doctor. And I bring that up because we're going to discuss some of your practices, which are very interesting, but are certainly not within the uh, scope of a conventional medical doctor. Yeah, okay. So, um, incidentally, I have a program now with Dr. Hugo Rodier, who is an integrative physician. Our program is called the Integrative Hermetic Health Hour, or Health Show. He's, he's very, he combines conventional medical research with... Uh, a, a great interest in classical and hermetic practices. So uh, he understands, you know, the meditation aspect of it very well. So if, if we have these psychic abilities and perceptions, we, we may have answered this question a little bit, but why don't we manifest them? Why do people so rare, rarely have these abilities? Well, just because um, they uh, basically got addicted to authoritative instructions and uh, teaching and learning in uh, you know from authoritative so uh, sources in such a way that they are taught to stay in the groove 
you know, for the most part, basically the the normal instruction, school instruction, and so forth, is uh, is defining the groove that we are all supposed to stay in for various reasons. I'm not gonna get into social reasons why society likes uniformity and doesn't like uh, anybody sticking out too much and so forth. And it's you know whatever. But basically, societies survive, and I have to say that our societies don't survive very well, you know, but yeah. uh, they're trying to survive at least, you know, they're trying to survive, and they're doing what they are what they think uh, needs to be done to survive, and so forth. And uh, so that, uh, we, we get schooling, uh, we get universities, and so forth, in such a way that is supposed to promote the survival. And uh, so basically, the idea is that you learn what everybody else is learning and you get where everybody else is going. And I call that a groove. You know, if you drive in the snow where I came from originally, there was a lot of snow. So you drive in in a certain rut and you will arrive where everybody else is arriving there are there are cars in front of you and behind you and everybody is going to get to the same place but if you don't want to get to the same place because you observe that people who get to that place are seriously disappointed there are sick unhappy people who screwed up their life for the most uh, for the most part you know and uh, they're very disappointed. They're they're just they're miserable, you know. Even like married people, you know, they maybe they they've been married for fifty or sixty years, and it seems like it's uh, it's supposed to be like a bliss and so forth. But then you look closer, and they actually hate each other. They can't stand <laughs> each other, you know. Yeah. This is this is where they arrived. Their whole life is kind of you start kind of probing around. I was doing Dianetics, so I you know worked with a lot of people for about two thousand hours of therapy, Dianetics therapy that I administered to other people. So that being kind of like a psychoanalysis, people open up and they tell you their things, and it's amazing what kind of crap people go through or get themselves into, and that's called normal. So. Yeah. Well, people are, you know, in in esoteric language, people are ordinary waking consciousness. People are really asleep because they don't they don't experience this higher level. This is not part of their lives. When I was when I was fourteen, I I was a uh, brought up as a in Reformed Judaism, and uh, I had been bar mitzvahed with some problems uh, because I didn't like a lot of what was going on. But anyway, I was managed to get bar mitzvahed. And the rabbi took us to different religious organizations. And I wound up in, in the Vedanta Society in New York, which is the, the teaching of Ramakrishna. And on the top of the, the sort of the ceiling, there were, there were, you know, the fire altar of Zoroastrianism, the, the crescent moon and uh, star of Islam, the six pointed star of Judaism, all these different religions. And that's where I started. That's where I became conscious that there was something to do. But it took me until I was 22. I, I meditated a lot, but I never got anywhere. And uh, when I met my first teacher, I found out why. And then it, it became like a practical search where you could actually do things and there would be changes in your consciousness. Yeah. So to well, me, manifest, when you say well, what, what it needs to be done to start manifesting these abilities, that's a big question. Because if you do the wrong thing, you may not get too far. Well, so, okay, here we are getting to what I call meat and potatoes, and I have to say right now, like as a disclaimer, that I I was never, ever able to relate in such a way that people would understand or would, like, uh, agree or, like, would even, like, come out thinking that I'm not completely crazy, you know? (laughs) So, So, like, so... 
I'm trying to avoid this question, but basically it goes down. So this ability to manifest this uh, uh, esoteric abilities that I profess or that I claim that anybody can can do and so forth uh, to heal others. So my specific brand of being a psychic is healing. I'm I'm not a psychic in terms of like I can't predict future very well. You know I can predict in in broad strokes that we're all gonna die probably and it's probably gonna hurt like hell. You know, but some of us are probably not gonna die like for example Cher and also Willie Nelson. But the rest of us are actually going to probably die. That's pretty much as far as I can go on on on. Well, what, what about what about people like Saint Germain? Well, I mean, that was just a joke. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's just not my brand of um, of being a psychic. Okay. My brand of being a psychic is the ability to locate uh, a spirit and that spirit's body anywhere on Earth, whether you know where or not, whether you know that person or not, where you ever communicated or not, it's like regardless, without any ifs or buts. Just locate anybody who needs help and then scan their um, scan their body in several different ways to find what's wrong with them and then heal them. That's my specific, like, that's what I'm kind of aligning everything to. It's, it's not so much, um, you know, any other any other possibilities that exist out there that, that totally exist. You know, uh, people have clairvoyance or, and they can um, multiply huge numbers and stuff like that and they know the answer you know, whatever, and they predict future and stuff like that. I'm not talking about any of that. I do think that um, since you and I both have studied Wayne Dyer, that that there is a a certain thread here. I don't think that some of these people who have those abilities necessarily really understand the 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 core thing, which is the idea of there being source, uh, having being connected to source. That's yeah. how Dyer would put it. And I, don't well, you agree that that is an important part of what you're doing? Yes, I agree. Uh, but like, if I may just tell you, you're not connected to source. You are source. Okay, uh, that's we, fine. You're a, part, you're, you're a part of the source. So like, I'm just like trying to relay basically what my uh, all this training is based on, uh, like the drilling and so forth. You see, all my drilling... And all my, um, what you call it, you know, gradual uh, improvement of abilities is based on training your imagination. So now, if you train your imagination, what I am saying is uh, you are basically exercising your divine endowment and you become uh, more and more psychic uh, until you can do it. So the only thing that's, that's missing then if you if you practice your imagination enough, is the ironclad, unshakable certainty. So practicing your imagination, you start actually seeing things that are actually there and stuff like that. But only if you drop your pretenses of not being certain. You know, if you if you actually shed all that crap and be true to your own original native self, you will practice complete certainty. In other words, you see something, you call it. You don't say that anything along the lines that well of course i don't know and of course who am i to even know you know and of course like you know i will i'm always wrong anyway you know and so forth i seem to think uh, to see something but it's probably complete nonsense 
like leaving all that behind and like far behind and away and aside, would you, you see something you call it? Let's say, for example, I talk to somebody and and somebody says, "Well, can you look at my? Can you take a look at my wife? Uh, she has uh, some digestive problems and recently she's been having like a hard time and stuff like that." And while he is saying that, I already see what's happening with the wife, and I'm saying she, you know, uh, uh, an upper GI problem or lower GI problem. Or whatever, but meanwhile, I'm already thinking that, God damn it, you know, what I actually see is cancer. Oh, you know? yeah. So now I'm, uh, I see cancer as a metallic object. When it gets metastasized, I see it often as just scattered pieces of shiny metal, kind of like little balls of like maybe ball bearings kind of thing throughout the body, you know. So they can be bright and shiny, which is very bad, or they can be dull and kind of dormant and asleep, which is kind of, which is what, what's called remission. So so I can beat any cancer into remission, and often I can remove cancer and so forth. But meanwhile, I'm thinking, like you were saying, you were talking about when you start this uh, spiritual pursuit, you're kind of on your own, you feel like a little bit lonely. In very, a way mu that, very much so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, as a, as a psychic healer, you're completely on your own in that you don't even necessarily share what you find. You don't necessarily share that you that what, what you find and that you're doing the treatment necessarily. For one, for one thing, you know, you want to like you, you have to like be your own counselor. You know, you have to have your own counsel. You have to kind of like be able to operate on your own all the time. Why? I'll tell you why. Because first of all, you are talking right now, let's say, to this guy, and you and you t took a look and you saw this cancer, and you have this unshakable certainty about everything all the time in order to be the healer. But now the question comes up: Were you thorough enough to be sure now that what you see is what you see? Like you didn't actually do any of the procedures that need to be done at all. You're just talking to this guy, and somewhere you know from the blue you see this cancer. So now you're you're supposed to uh, open your mouth and start uh, blabbing your mouth that she has cancer. No, you have to actually uh, take responsibility and end this conversation and go into a quiet place and really take a look. And if there is a cancer, then you tell. That's one thing. Another thing is some people, let's say my father. You know, here's here's a, a great example. So seven years ago, my father had a heart valve that was replaced, and it was a really, it went really bad. The surgery, and he was supposed to die right then and there, right? Okay, I can't come. I, I wasn't able to. I tried many times coming to my father and saying, "Listen, I can probably heal you. I can probably get you out of this. I can, you know, um, I can help you live." longer and so forth but he was always against any of this he was completely and totally a materialistic uh, person who didn't want any of this he would actually get seriously angry so okay so my my question is then should i if i can't tell him can't i treat him and heal him in secret that he doesn't even know that i'm doing that or should i just drop him and say well I, you know it's not he doesn't want to you know it's not my fault yeah, of course he's gonna die, but like it's everybody dies anyway, and he doesn't want to, so I didn't do anything. So I have to answer these questions, and if I answer, for example, no, I'm gonna treat him, but then I can't tell him. Okay, then I didn't tell him. So basically, I prolonged his life for seven years. Some of those seven years, looking back at it, you know, some of those seven years were good. The last year was not necessarily good. Yeah. And uh, in the last two weeks or so, I actually stopped helping him completely. 
because, you know, I understood that basically it's kind of pointless. And uh, also people when they die, like people who are very sick and suffer a lot and stuff, when they die, they as spirits, they have such an elation and such a resurgence and such a joy they experience when they finally drop this old bag of bones you know yeah and i and i i, I communicated with, with with these people helping them you know in their transition to the next body and so forth many times i don't know a couple dozen times and every time i see the same elation and the same uh the same joy and so forth so why uh why would i want to prolong it for much longer because, you listen know? we got we we're gonna have to come back Another day, because we've only touched the surface of your book and what you yes. do. So this is very exciting to me. Would that be possible? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so That's we nice. will. We're going to uh, say goodbye now, and we'll be back very soon with another program. This is Johnny Blue Star, host of Inalienable and Free: The Voice of the Coalition, a program devoted to the development of the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. The Coalition is a unique project designed to empower its members both individually and collectively. Besides individual empowerment, its broader focus is on the restoration, protection, and enhancement of citizen and human rights throughout the world through the aid of its members. As this project is centered in the United States, our first task is to create a website and social network infrastructure to promote collective efforts to take back our rightful control as citizens over our government as designed by our founding fathers. Although we must begin with a social network restricted to United States citizens, the organization will also host a global dialogue for the discussion of human rights by citizens of democratic nations throughout the world. If you're interested please check us out in the GoFundMe.com website, entering in the search field, The Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. That is, go to GoFundMe.com and enter in the search field, The Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. This is Johnny Blue Star. We all live very closely or within ourselves to an immense journey of self-discovery and adventure. For humanity, both the wide expanse of stars and the infinitely wider space within ourselves beckon us to make that leap forward. Thank you for making Threshold Radio part of your journey. Be well and keep cosmic. We leave again with Patricia Welch singing her version of Unchained Melody.
Wait for me.